0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Van Undercovers for March 2017, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. This month's interview is with author Mark Rabowski about Hank, the short life and long country road of Hank Williams. After he died in the backseat of a Cadillac at the age of 29, Hank Williams, a frail, flawed man who had become country music's first real star, instantly morphed into its first tragic martyr. Having hit the heights with simple songs of despair, depression, and tainted love, he would, with that outlaw swagger, become in death a template for the rock generation to follow. Six decades later, Mark Rabowski now weaves together the first fully realized biography of Hank Williams in a generation, examining his music while also recreating days and nights choked in booze and death. Desperation, Rabowski traces the miraculous rise of this music legend from the dirt roads of rural Alabama to the now immortal stage of the Grand Ole Opry, and finally to a sad, lonely end on New Year's Day, 1953. The result is an original work that promises to uncover the real Hank beneath the myths that have long enshrouded his legacy there have been other biographies written about hank williams so when i started my interview with mark Rabowski, i asked him why he decided to write his own biography of the great country legend hank williams
1: well as often happens in life as you get older you start to appreciate things you may have overlooked when you were younger growing up in new york not exactly a hotbed of country music. Although there there always has, there has always been um, a section, you know, sections of New York and the environs that, that were into country music, even in, back in the 50s. But not for me, being a baby boomer growing up in the rock and roll era. So when I get all, got older and started writing books about music and be, became sort of a pseudo-historian about pop culture and music and its place in the culture, that's when I discovered people like Hank Williams, I mean, I I knew the name, obviously, but I think I knew more for his son, Frank Williams Jr., you know, for the, are you you ready for some football and all that nonsense, you know? (laughs) Sure,
0: sure, yeah,
1: yeah. And the son was actually a humongous, it's forgotten now, basically, because he's kind of of a, a joke in his older age, but he, for a while, in the 70s and 80s, he was the dominant country music figure. So, you know, you start asking yourself, well, he's Hank Williams Jr. Who was Hank Williams Sr.? I mean, who really was Hank Williams Sr.? And that's when you start finding out all of this amazing, amazing stuff about the man who was very little covered in his day by the press. Because there there was sort of a natural, you know, suspicion and loathing among the northern Tears of the press corps about what was going on in the Deep South, you know. So he wasn't really covered that well, and there is a treasure trove of information about this guy. And you start reading, and you start asking around the few people who are still alive who knew him in his day. And this is, like you say, this is it's like a grand novel of the South. It's like a Graham Greene, you know. It, 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 it's it's just an it's like an Erskine Caldwell novel, and it was all true and the forerunner of today's culture in many ways.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Hank Williams lived the rock and roll, uh, you know, lifestyle. I mean, he makes, he makes Keith Richards look like a teetotaler. I mean, <laughs> I mean it's just unbelievable. Well, I'm Keith
1: the- Richards, like the rest of them, are really the pretenders. You know, they're, they're, they're the ones who are like living the template as written by Hank because he was really the first one to live that lifestyle, you know, to, to unapologetically live that lifestyle like i know i'm gonna die young so i might as well pack as much living as i can into 29 years even if a lot of that living is is illegal activity <laughs> criminal yeah. activity even if i had to take a shot or two with my wife oh. you know i'm just gonna and the, and the point of the book is that this is not behavior to be emulated you know this is not what you do and and the, you know a lot of the country uh, singers. Uh, The later country singer, like the 60s, 70s, the Outlaws, revered Hank. But they also started saying, you know, this is not this is not endemic to the South. This is not what we are. We're we're not, we don't want to live our lives with mindless, you know, disregard for women and, and, and drinking ourselves to death. And that came to a sort of consensus that maybe Hank wasn't the greatest guy to emulate, but if you just stayed with his music, you could, you could go places. You could go a lot of places.
0: Mark, who were some of the? You mentioned some of the key people still alive who you spoke to for the book. Who were some of those key interviews you did for your new book?
1: Well, there's a guy. There's only one left. He um, was a guitar player who lives in the Lakeland. He's about 90 years old. He was the he was the only the only one who's still living who ever played in the Drifting Cowboys, which was Hanks band, you know, although it was a, a, a moving, always revolving phalanx of people. There was never a set group, but they're all gone. And this is the problem you face when you, when you do a book like this. Um, I've done a lot of music books, uh, you know, Motown books and a lot of the Motown, uh, you know, musicians are gone, a very few left, wrecking crew there, kind of dying off. And, you know, it's, it, it, it's sad, it's tragic. And you have to sort of go deeper in your research to make up for that. And you do, you find things that were written that have never been republished from 50, 60, 70 years ago. Wow. And that's what you got to do with something like this. You almost have to transport yourself back to a time where nobody's going to guide you through but yourself. And so that's basically what I did, and I try to tailor it as sort of as a novel, as a story that carries through from the first page to the last.
0: Two women featured so prominently in his life, his his mother, Lily, and his first wife, Audrey. And uh, I guess it's safe to say that they got along kind of like oil and water, but these two women were both very, very powerful figures for Hank. Tell, Tell us a little bit about both, please.
1: Yeah, that's actually, you know, if you want to sum up the dynamic of Hank's life, is that he lived under the thumb or behind the skirt of each of these powerful women who controlled his life from top to bottom and made life miserable for him, but without whom he probably never would have gone anywhere. He probably would have died young, pumping gas or something, you know, down in South Alabama. Uh, He needed to have that strength because his father was kind of a weakling. His father, Father Lon, Alonzo Lon Williams was a sickly man. He was uh, gassed in, in, in World, War, World War I, World War II, I guess, right? Uh-huh.
0: No, World no, War I. No, World War I. World War I, no, <laughs> yeah. on
1: yeah, the battlefield and he sh- had, later in life, he became sickly because of it and had to be committed to VA hospitals and wasn't even around. So Hank never had a father figure and had to rely on his mother who actually was the dominant figure Right from the start, she, Lily she was a was a big woman physically and in, and you know psychologically, towering over her children and everybody else that she ever met. She was married about four or five times, and it was always sort of you know uh, I'm going to get what I need and then discard this husband for the next one. So she she had the vision, you know. She was the one who moved to Montgomery from the sticks in Alabama because she wanted her son to be in the big city of Montgomery, you know, and make it there so that he could be a, a lift-off, a launch to, you know, bigger and better things like the Grand Ole Opry, you know. So she was the one who guided him, but she was a miserable woman, as you say, clashing with everyone around her, stealing money from him, taking much more than her share. And when Audrey came into the picture and, and Hank married her, it was oil and water because – that both of them, each of them, could see that the other was looking to stop, you know, the encroachment of the other one from from having any influence in Hank's life. So it was a yin and yang. It was a tug of war all through those years. And Hank, of course, in the middle, had to find a way to escape, you know, being in the middle of this vortex. And how he did it, of course, was his music. Again, without these women, without Audrey in particular. We wouldn't have had songs like You're Cheating Hard or Cold Cold Hard. They never, would have, they never would have happened because Hank had to live that. He could only write about what he lived. And what he lived was a horror, was a mess, but he needed Marjorie around lest he lose that instinct for writing. It, it, it was a classic love-hate relationship from, mm-hmm. from top
0: to bottom. And tell us about Hank's early days. He, he was in pain for basically his entire life because of a birth defect. Is that right? Well, he had
1: spina bifida, which was a, a condition that was not even hardly ever diagnosed back then in the twenties. So you know, he'd go to a country doctor, you know, when he was five or six years old, and the doctor would notice he had these these, these uh, irregularities, these markings on his back or whatever, and didn't really know what it was. So they, he just said, "Well, it'll go away when you get older." You know, so Hank, Hank never knew what he had, even till the day he died. He didn't. Actually, uh, a couple of months before he died, he had back surgery, and they they told him he had serious condition, and he had to wear a brace, which he hated, and mm-hmm. and and took off rather than wearing. And he just decided he was going to drink the pain away. So he never really knew what he had. He didn't die. Bifida, but it contributed to the need he had to have to drink and drink every day of his life. And then later on combine that with, with killer painkilling drugs, like chloral hydrate, uh, which he would self medicate with. He would just get prescrip blank prescription pads from lackey doctors that he knew. And he would just go have these prescriptions filled. And when he died, he was you know basically it was a, a walking drugstore. Uh, every kind of painkiller booze, and, you know, he he knew he was going to die. And I think, it, it, you know, a lot of people have su- suspected this through the years, but I think he was actually trying to kill himself slowly so that he wouldn't have to, to endure this pain anymore. Mm. But then, he, you know, he, he had these obligations to keep going, you know, to, to make money and pay, for, and pay for Audrey and give money to Lily. So it was like, you know, he wanted to die, but he couldn't, he couldn't just kill himself immediately. So I think he did it in a way that was gradual. I really do. I think it was a psychological thing.
0: When did he first get into music and what what was what were the first like first key career breaks for him when he was, you know, really, really taking the country music world by storm?
1: Well, he used to sell peanuts on the streets uh, at the uh, the uh, or at the railroad uh, terminals down there in South Alabama because his father would would uproot the family. He was a logger and he would go wherever the work was back then in the depression, and he would take the family with him. And wherever he went, Hank would play at the the railroad depot. You know, he would take his guitar. Lily bought him a guitar when he was very young, and um, he would play and sell peanuts. For money to take home to give to Lily because Lily would demand it, so he became a street musician, so to speak. You know, he would, he would later play on street corners. And when they moved to Montgomery, he was he was smart. He was he was bold. He played outside the the office building where the radio, the big radio station was in Montgomery, and they would have to notice him when they were walking into the building. And he was good. I mean, he was good at 15, 16, He was good. He was a hard drinking, rambling man at 16 believe it or not uh, although he wore his glasses that made him look bookish he was a, a rebel at 15 16 and he had his own radio show they gave it to him of course that didn't mean much when they weren't paying you but they gave him his radio show and yeah. so he could come upstairs and play and from then on he, he developed his reputation his word of mouth reputation all along all along south alabama and eventually he you know Got noticed by uh, Fred Rose, who was a big music publisher in Nashville, uh, affiliated with the Grand Ole Opry, and he became his manager and his producer and his co-writer. And it just became a snowball, you know, it was snow rolling downhill. He just kept gaining ascent, even though he never really cared where he was working. He never, he never thought, hey, I got to go to in the Grand Ole Opry because. He knew he threw that up, too. He would, never, he would never buckle under to authority. And that actually happened when he went to the Grand Ole Opry. He got fired because he, he just couldn't, keep him, couldn't stay clean and, and couldn't follow the rules. So he just went back. He went down to, New, uh, to Louisiana, to the Louisiana Hayride, and he became a superstar there. And then he came back to the Grand Ole Opry, and he was bouncing around like this his whole life. All he really wanted to do was sing you know, and record. That was just, that was just, you listen to some of those old recordings, he seemed so sophisticated, you, you can hardly believe it. He didn't use a drum, except for maybe one or two songs, huh. in his, in, in his whole career. He used a drummer, just, just twice. Otherwise, if you listen to these records, you would swear there was a drummer back there. Oh yeah, because there's, he would, there's so much rhythm, yeah, he. Because really, because Fred Rosen, he developed ways to use guitars, you know, the flat beat of a guitar and a bass in conjunction, making it sound like there was a drum playing. You know, the Grand Granolapid prohibited drums. Why, I don't know. I've never gotten that. For years, they prohibited drums Ridiculous. from that stage. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, you, know when Elvis came, they, you couldn't do drums until like the late 50s. So what you do is to, to get that percussion sound. You, just, you, you would experiment in the studio. And this was in the 30s and the 40s, man. There was there were no tracking then. There was no, there were no state-of-the-art sound boards. You know, there, there was no echo that you could apply, like Phil Spector with his wall of sound. <laughs> you had to just go in and do it with four or five musicians. One take. And that's what he did. And that's why those records are so magical.
0: You write right at the beginning of your your book, Mark, and I I, I didn't realize this, that that very few of Hank's songs, though, crossed over to the pop market. He had many dozens of hits, close to three dozen hits on the country charts. And I'm talking about when he was alive, but only, I think, you write two songs that crossed over to the actual pop charts. I guess I didn't realize that.
1: Yeah, well, what's so revealing about that? Is that before he recorded or before he released some of these songs, the early pressings would get around to or, or you know the other record companies in New York, and his some of his songs would be out on the on the radio recorded by Tony Bennett uh, you know or or you know, really it, 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 this would happen all the time that the pop people would would cover his songs before his record got out. that showed you the strength of. Of the songs themselves, right? Because Hank, obviously, when he sang a song, it would be in the country vein, of course, but I mean, he's a hillbilly. That's the only way he could sing. But the songs themselves were, were so attuned to the culture that they could be sung by anybody. He was regarded by a lot of these music publishers as the ideal, perfect songwriter of his generation. Yet, when he would release a song, uh, it would be the it would be on the country chart, and it would not go any further than the country chart. It's a, it's a dichotomy that, that's really puzzling. But you have to understand the way the northern publishers looked down upon southern singers. They were hillbillies, and you know they they just didn't deserve a hearing in the north. But mm. Hank would do it. Hank would do it. Mitch Miller loved him. Mitch Miller, who you know hated rock and roll music, sure. loved Hank Williams' music, which is odd because, as you just said. His songs were, were really the genesis of rock and roll because they, they led to rockabilly, which later led to rock and roll. They, you know, he, was, he was the first link in that chain. So, yeah, if you listen to a Hank Williams song, you probably hear a lot. Of, you'll, you'll hear a lot of what came later in those songs. You know, like Ramblin' Man, right? Oh, With yeah. Dickie Betts singing about, you know, oh. yeah. Lord, I was born around ram- Ramblin' Man. Well, that was Hank's line. Right. When the Lord made me, he made me a rambling man, you know, oh, and, and Bill Haley in the comics stole Move It On Over, you know, for, for Rock Around the Clock, you know, it was the same song, and these were, these were things later on that, you know, later became clear when, when pop and rock and rollers started actually covering songs, you know. And, you know, I'm so lonesome I could cry and stuff like that. that led directly to people like Chris Staufferson and Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings and, and Johnny Cash. So his it's just so strong that when you listen to a Hank Williams song, you will hear the future of rock and roll in your
0: ears before there was a rock and roll. So true. So, so true. It, it's just, it's just painful to, to read, um, all these segments where he is missing gigs where he he's just uh, i mean it's just pathetic how how like you like he has this death wish i mean he's just putting anything he can get his hands on into his body to kill the 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 all sorts of pain you know the physical pain the the mental anguish and yet somehow keeps going and when he's not totally smashed is still absolutely incredible on stage and then everything comes to this shattering conclusion on New Year's Day in 1953 it looks like you did a lot of really deep research into the death of Hank Williams, and there are still so many things we we really don't know and probably will never know about his passing from what you write.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's... <laughs> people like that like a Jim Morrison right yeah. Hello, he's, he's, Elvis is a lot Elvis is somewhere in the middle in the diner in the Midwest right now I mean <laughs> yeah, yeah. this is the, the kind of mythos that these people cult- you know that, that the fans of these people cultivate he, he didn't die a glorious death but you know when you think of Hank Williams his death is almost glorious you know because of the way, you know, dying alone in the back of his Cadillac you know with a, a gun in his, his pocket and, a bee, and beer cans all around him and writing his last song you know I'll never I'll never get out of this world alive you know what I mean it's just so perfect it was almost like it was scripted but it wasn't like you say by the end he wasn't even able to perform for him on stage, I mean, for years, he was able to when he was drunk and stoned, but toward the end, he was just a sloppy drunk, and he, you know, he couldn't remember the lyrics to his songs, and it was very, it was very, very depressing to people who knew him, he, you know, he'd gotten hooked up with this, this quack doctor here, you know, who would prescribe him, it wasn't even a doctor, it was a phony doctor, who later went to jail. You know, and, and, and he was just, he was looking for people who could get in drugs and booze. And it, it was just a terrible, terrible situation. Like I said, I, I'm convinced it was, a, it was, a, it was a suicide, a slow suicide. There's no way you could live through that. And people, people knew it around him. They say like his sister, Irene, and, and you know, his cousin, Marie, they all, they were all said later, we knew he was dying. We knew he was going to, he wasn't going to live very long. So when they heard that he died, it wasn't even a surprise to many of them. It wasn't even a surprise to Lily. I mean, she came to the Oak Hill in West Virginia where he died. And the only thing she had in mind was preserving the car and preserving the artifacts so that nobody else would get their hands on them. Cause it meant money. Mm. This is all it meant. This is the kind of family he had to be around all his life. You know, they didn't care about him as a person. He was just a means to an end. So that was part of the whole, thing about Hank, the, the dynamic, the, you know, it was, the, the music was so brilliant, but, the, but his life was so terrible. You almost have to wonder if that's a prerequisite for, for being great, for be, having, you know, that kind of constant pain and, and, and discord around you. Because, I mean, that's what we see in so many brilliant people, right? Yes. It's, yes. Never, it's never an easy story. It's never, you know, it's never a, a Boy Scout kind of story. You know, where you, where a guy you know, it's, it, it, it's it's just not that's not what life is. Life is a, a series of failures that you have to get through, and if you live, you're stronger for it. Well, Hank got through it, but he wasn't stronger for it, and that's why he didn't live very long.
0: My final question, Mark, about how many songs did Hank Williams write in his lifetime, and of those, is there one that is your absolute favorite?
1: Oh god, you know, it's like people asking you what's your favorite Beatles song, yeah. you know, you just <laughs> no way. You, it's
0: not you, fair. It's, it's not a range. fair question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, The Range was so unbelievable. You you would think that, by the way we we've been talking here that all these songs were despondent and and dark and and cynical. But what about Jambala, Jambalaya? You know yeah. what what, what what? What? That's a happy song. You what know? about like you "Move me? It On Over"?
0: I love "Move It On Over." You kidding not "Move It On Over." I mean,
1: these, these are songs to dance to. These aren't, you know. Hey, good looking. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah for I saw sure. the light. Has there ever been a more optimistic kind of congregational liturgy than "I Saw the Light"? That's his plea for God to save him. You know, because he 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 wants to live, but he knows he can't. You know, so he's, got, he's caught in the middle, so he's pleading with God, I please let me see the light here, you know? Or baby, we're really in love. That's his optimistic vision of his marriage that never came through, yeah. that never that never existed for a single day. Or I can't help it if I'm still in love with you. Oh, These songs, right from the heart, from the marrow, you know? And so it's hard to pick up. A, a, I mean, I love rambling, man, because... It, it's not a song really. It's one of his Luke the Drifter's confessionals, you know, the semi-spoken blues. Cause, because that's the song that, you know, people like Dickie Betts took to their heart when when they were growing up and they heard that. I'm a rambling man, Lord, I'm a rambling man. You know, that's the South. I mean, the, the South is, is so rich anyway when it comes to creative, that, that was their escape. I think Greal Marcus, the great rock critic, Said the South's great shelter was was music, even more than its literature, and I believe that. Uh, you know, I've written about people from the South. I've written about you know Tom Landry, the coach of the Dallas Cowboys, and the the Texas story that was. Well, this is an Alabama story. This is a Deep South story. Uh, you know, I'm writing about the Manning family now in football. That was a mm-hmm. Mississippi a Mississippi story, another deep South story. And these are the ones that really resonate. I mean, I almost regret not growing up in the South. (laughs) I grew up in New York and we had our own, you know, we had our own things going on there, but the South is where all this culture is. That's really the the breadbasket of American culture. I mean, we could talk about other, you know, other repercussions in the South, the racial, you know, political and racial, but when it comes to arts, the arts, I think the pain, and, uh, the pain and misery of having to atone for the Confederacy and all that kind of stuff, it's very psychological. But, you know, in the end, it all leads to art. It, all, it leads some way to some form of art. And Hank was so, so much a part of that. It's unbelievable.
0: Thanks for listening to Martin Van Dyke Undercovers and our interview with author Mark Rabowski about Hank, the short life and long country road of Hank Williams. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library.